like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on the neurobiology of addiction. And I am going to try to make this less dreadful than it actually sounds. Um, so let's just get started and get into it. Please feel free to ask questions in the chat room. I will answer them as I can. And if I don't have the answers, I will look them up for you. In this class, it's really basic. We're going to be talking about how tolerance develops and discussing the impact of addictive substances and behaviors on the brain and body. We're not going to go deep down into it because guess what? We've only got an hour. So we're really going to be hitting the highlights, but I think it's important to recognize and to help clients recognize the, the impact that not only addictive substances, but addictive behaviors have on the uh, have on the body and on the brain, and that they are enduring. Just because you went through detox or because you stopped doing it for you know a week or whatever, doesn't mean you're not going to experience withdrawal symptoms for a while because the brain has to recover. In substance abuse treatment, we call this the post-withdrawal syndrome. Briefly, for those of you who are not super familiar with addiction and tolerance, let's talk about tolerance. Uh, the brain is really cool because it knows that we need a certain balance of neurochemicals in our body. And everybody has a slightly different balance. Um, but the brain tries to maintain um, homeostasis in the body. Just think of it like um, uh, running a warm bath. And when you run a warm bath, you know, what, what are you doing? You are turning up the hot, turning up the cold, trying to get it so it's just right. And that's what the brain wants to do. When you take drugs or experience stress, it increases levels of certain neurotransmitters. If you are taking stimulants or experiencing anxiety or anger or any of those stimulatory feelings, it's kind of like turning up the hot water. If you are using depressants, like benzodiazepines or opioids, or you're just feeling depressed, um, it's like turning up the cold water. So you know when you're taking a bath, if you, you know, suddenly ramp up one or the other, it's going to make the bath so it's uncomfortable. To normalize the chemical levels for the in the brain for survival, the body or the brain balances the temperature. So and it does this two ways. It increases the secretion or receptor activation of the opposite neurotransmitter. So if you are taking a depressant, for example, like alcohol, when we first drink it, it has depressant effects. And guess what? To regulate for that, the body starts increasing its production of our excitatory neurotransmitters, glutamate and stuff, because it says we don't want to get slowed down that much. We need to, you know, hello, you know, warm it up a little bit. Um, and it can also reduce the activation of the targeted receptor, which is really what we talk about when we talk about tolerance, flooding your brain with dopamine all the time. Eventually the brain is going to say, okay, dopamine receptors, when the dopamine gets there, it has to reach this much higher threshold in order to, uh, activate you. If you want to think about it in terms of a door, because a lot of people talk about receptors in, in terms of a lock and a key, when the body becomes sensitized, instead of being able to knock lightly on the door and get it opened, the body says, no, so if somebody wants this door open, they're going to have to pound the heck out of it. You know, they're going to have to hit it with their fist and make a really loud noise. Same sort of thing. You know, it's not, doesn't exactly translate, but same sort of thing with tolerance. Those targeted receptors become less sensitive and they start ignoring the light knocks on the door and they wait until there's, you know, a pounding. To get the same high, 
the person either needs more of that same, so more cocaine, more benzos, more whatever, or something completely different, you know, which is, um, you know, people can combine different substances in order to hyperactivate and get more dopamine into the system. And dopamine and our endogenous opioids are really what we typically talk about in terms of addictive substance. Now you're going to learn throughout the presentation that there are a ton, there's about a half a dozen neurotransmitters that are involved in just about every addiction, addictive process. So it's not just dopamine. And we want to look at these because it also gives us some clues as to what the person might be self-medicating, whether their GABA is too low or their serotonin too high or, you know, whatever. It's not an exact science. You know, it really is not. But it does help us understand what's going on with the clients and it may help the client understand where their cravings are coming from. Because when they are... When their body becomes um, desensitized to the influx of the chemical, so the dopamine, for example, you know, the body says, we're not going to open the door unless you're pounding. Well, then the per when the person is not pounding on the door, when the person is not flooding their system with, with opioids, then the door's not opening. So the opioids aren't through, which means there's, there, it's creating a deficit on the other side of the door. So what happens? The body starts craving and it says, hello, you know, we need to get some of that stuff through here. The brain's function, and, and again, it's really cool how it does it. It's frustrating that it takes so long to fix it, but it's really cool that the brain automatically kicks in when it senses it's getting too hot or too cold and tries to regulate by controlling, again, the activation of those targeted receptors or increasing the production of other brain chemicals to balance it out. Withdrawal um, triggers opposing physiological and psychological symptoms. Well, the psychological is because physiological. When you're taking, for example, cocaine, let's take a stimulant since we've been talking about opioids. When you're taking cocaine, you are ramping up your system. You are flooding it with dopamine and excitatory neurotransmitters. You are you know, turning up that heat really, really high. So the body says, oh my gosh, I can't run that hot. That is too hot. We're going to burn up. So I need to start letting fewer of those excitatory neurotransmitters through, turn down the temperature a little bit that way. But I also need to start secreting compensatory neurotransmitters to try to, you know, blunt it out, to try to put out the... Um, so when people are in withdrawal, the brain has not gotten the message yet that there aren't going to be any more assaults, that you aren't, you've turned down the hot water. And so it's expecting more hot water, it's expecting more heat to come its way. So it's going to keep producing those compensatory neurotransmitters and it's going to keep the uh, sensitization of those receptors higher for longer. It takes a little while for the brain to go, oh, the assault is over. I don't have to compensate anymore. I can go back to normal or whatever that is for that person. Uh, so withdrawal, when people start experiencing their withdrawal symptoms, what you're seeing is the excess of the total, all of the opposite neurochemical. Um, if the person was taking system depressants, then you're off often going to see, you know, diarrhea, you're going to be anxiety, maybe high blood pressure. See a lot of those excited. The chronic administration of drugs dysregulates the stress response and the hypoth 
hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis. And we talk about the stress response system or the HPA axis a lot in my classes. And it's important to recognize that anytime you are altering those uh, the homeostasis of the neurotransmitters in your brain, that is considered. And during withdrawal, when the brain feels like it's, you know, uh, it's needing something that it's not getting, then that triggers the HPA axis that triggers the stress response. And they found that there are certain responses common for all drugs of abuse and alcohol, including an activated HPA axis response, which as you know, when the HPA axis kicks off, it releases cortisol, adrenaline, glutamate, norepinephrine, all of your fight or flight chemicals, which can often prompt feelings of anxiety or agitation people. Repeated cycles of addictive behavior, keep doing it. You know, once, if you just, if you don't drink very often and you go out and you drink alcohol um, and maybe you get buzzed or whatever, you, you drink enough that it alters how you're feeling, then you may have that anxiety or agitation to sober up. But if you are habitually drinking alcohol or using cocaine or opiates or whatever, then the body says, okay, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm coming to expect that you are going to, the brain says you are going to assault me. You know, you are going to turn up that temperature or turn down the temperature, depending on what you're taking every single day. So I've got to be prepared for that. So it blunts the HPA axis response, just like it blunts the response uh, substance. It also blunts the stress response. And a lot of times when people come into detox, they talk about being sick and tired of being tired. It doesn't matter whether they were taking opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine or, or cannabis, whatever it is is um, a lot of people when they show up to detox they are tired and that is one of the symptoms that we see in people who are experiencing something called hypocortisolism. Basically the brain has experienced stresses so many times and that stress response that it started to say you know what I can't be this stressed out. I can't run this hot because every time we're stressed it's turning up all those excitatory neurochemicals. This leads to something that I call flat or fear um, and it's an exaggerated response response. So the body is just kind of in this blunted state, not really reacting, think like Eeyore, um, as a result of experiencing so much overstimulation of that HPA axis. It's just, it's kind of holding on for all it's worth. It's like, I, I'm not going to respond to anything, but the most urgent emergencies now. But when it finally does get stimulated, it goes from you know, zero or negative two to 150 like that. So there's an exaggerated response where it would normally have gone from, you know, zero to 10. It goes from zero to, and that's the body's way of going, wait, put on the brakes. We're not doing this again. The reduced sensitivity of brain systems involved in the experience of pleasure or reward is also, you know, a sign of tolerance and something that the brain does in order to try to protect itself. It's weird to say, that the brain thinks it can't be ha this happy all the time, but it can't be flooded with that imbalance in neurochemicals all of the time. So let's talk about some of these neurochemicals. Serotonin is responsible for your mood. We know that people uh, take SSRIs, SNRIs, SNDRIs, um, uh, antidepressant medications in order to help their mood. Now, serotonin's interesting because 
too much serotonin for anxiety, too little serotonin, people experience feelings of depression. Now, is that because of the serotonin levels or is that because of the levels of other neurotransmitters that are affected because serotonin's out of whack? We don't know, which is part of the reason it's so difficult for doctors right now to identify which type of medication will be, will be best. Um, I mentioned just a minute ago, SSRIs, your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they mainly act on serotonin. And then serotonin's availability affects the availability of just about everything else. Um, but SSRIs just act on serotonin. SNRIs act on norepinephrine. So it increases the levels of norepinephrine and directly and then indirectly serotonin. And then SNDRIs, um, SSNDRIs, affect the or increase the levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So it's kind of like throwing the kitchen sink at it. But not everybody needs more dopamine, um, or at least not to that degree. So some people respond better to certain medications than others, which when your patients are on antidepressants, you know, it's important to know whether what type of antidepressant it is. So you have an idea about what's going on. And if you see some side effects, if it doesn't be working for them, then you can advocate for them to advocate or with them to advocate with their doctor for maybe an alteration type of medication or consider a one in that family. Anyhow, uh, serotonin regulates mood, heart rate. When you have, uh, especially if you have too much serotonin, your heart rate may go up. Blood pressure, it can go up as serotonin levels go up. Pain threshold, nice thing. Pain, go pain threshold goes up as serotonin levels go up. As serotonin levels go down, pain threshold goes down. Memory, now here's where we get a little wonky here. Serotonin itself um, affects those things, but it also affects the amount of dopamine, plus or minus. There are multiple different types of serotonin receptors out there. So depending on which serotonin, recept serotonin receptors are being activated versus blunted, um, you're going to have different reactions in terms of the release of dopamine and glutamate. So not all serotonin is just to add a little kink in, into the works. Serotonin, interestingly enough, also aids in wound healing. So in early recovery, people, or even in active addiction, people may have a more difficult time recovering from wound healing because serotonin is actually found in platelet that can increase um, skin development, you know, the knitting together back of wound, as, as my doctor says. Dopamine is also involved, and this is the one we generally talk about in terms of uh, addictive behaviors, but attention, memory, and motor control are all directly affected by dopamine. Um, people with ADHD tend to have insufficient levels of dopamine. Um, people with uh, restless leg syndrome or Parkinson's disease often have insufficient levels of dopamine. Your dopamine goes down throughout the day, which is why symptoms of RLS and Parkinson's are often worse at night. Motivation. And also, I should note that when people are have symptoms of schizophrenia and they're taking uh, antipsychotics or atypical antipsychotics, that reduces dopamine. So they may start having issues with restless leg syndrome or, or something like that. And that's, that's a difficult little thing to balance. Um, if they're taking any medication for restless leg syndrome, then that's also 
increasing their, their dopamine levels, which may affect their um, mood symptoms. And, you know, if they have any psychotic symptoms, it may, it may affect those. Dopamine is also known for affecting our motivation. Now, we used to call it the pleasure chemical, but they found that that's not really actually accurate anymore. Um, dopamine is more involved in what I call perseveratory. It's the, I want to do that again. That was really fun. Let's do more of that. Um, you have a lot of other chemicals like your endogenous opioids that provide the pleasure aspect of it. Dopamine is your going after, your motivation, determination. Dopamine is also responsible for arousal when we um, are an energy, both sexual arousal and and energy. When people are taking antipsychotics, what do we often see as a side effect? A lot of times they are feeling exhausted. And this is a side effect of lowering dopamine level. When people are depressed and, you know, one of their symptoms is extreme fatigue, you know, that could be because of low dopamine. We know that serotonin levels affect levels of dopamine. And dopamine is also involved, just like serotonin, in our pain threshold. So as serotonin goes down, dopamine goes down. As dopamine goes down, pain threshold goes down. When people are in early recovery, if they have been ramping up their dopamine with addic addictive behaviors, then they may experience temporarily more pain. Their pain threshold may be lower. What normally wouldn't bother them too much may feel more painful to them because their body is you know, relying on external sources of stimulation for dopamine. So it's, you know, not getting as through natural. It takes a while for the body to realize, oh, you want me to do this by myself again? Okay, I got it. Norepinephrine is another chemical and it's an excitatory neurochemical. It also helps us with focus and concentration. Interestingly enough, it's also involved in peer production, blood pressure, immunity. Um, it reduces uh, digestive activity and increases blood glucose. When that HPA axis is activated, um, it secretes cortisol and norepinephrine shortly thereafter. Norepinephrine tells the body, hey, we need to fight or flee, so you need to put some blood sugar into the system so we have some energy to run on. And it also reduces digestive activity because now's not the time to rest and digest. Now's the time to fight or flee. Well, all that works well in a well-functioning system. But if somebody happens to also have diabetes, in addition to addiction or in addition to even you know, chronic stress that keeps that HPA axis activated, in addition to um, generalized anxiety disorder. We're going to see that they have high, higher levels of norepinephrine more often, that HPA axis is activated more often, which means they're going to have dumps in blood glucose more often. And people who have diabetes know this just by virtue of the fact that they know that stress makes it more difficult to control their blood sugar. We want to be on the lookout for this with clients um, in early recovery. A lot of people uh, in the U.S. have pre-diabetes or undiagnosed diabetes. We know that people who have been engaging in addictive behaviors often have not been taking the best care of themselves uh, physically, so they may not have gone to the doctor or they may have overlooked symptoms. So we do want to make sure that we are keeping an eye out for any underlying physiological pathology that might show up during that early recovery. But we do know that during detox and for people who do have diabetes during post-acute withdrawal syndrome, uh, that first year or so, 
it is more difficult for them to regulate their blood glucose. So they will need to be much more attentive. And acetylcholine. This isn't one we talk about a lot, but it is an important one. It's involved in cognition. Another one that's involved in tear production. Bowel functioning. When acetylcholine gets out of whack, people may experience symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. It helps regulate dopamine and serotonin. When acetylcholine's in the system, it increases dopamine and reduces serotonin, which is kind of interesting because we know that serotonin is dopamine. So it's almost like they kind of work with each other, but the system knows how the system works. Recognizing that acetylcholine is involved in alteration of dopamine and serotonin and noting its uh, connection with irritable bowel syndrome is important to know because if somebody starts having IBS symptoms in detox early recovery, keeping an eye on that, you know, it could just be, you know, the initial week or two, some, some substances when you detox, your, your GI system just goes completely haywire for a little while. Opioids are a particular example. But after you get through that initial detox, if they're still experiencing irritable bowel syndrome um, or symptoms, it's certainly worth having them go to the doctor and get that looked at. Glutamate is our main excitatory neurotransmitter. It is used in the Krebs cycle to produce energy. It is involved, again, in dopamine release and memory. You know, it doesn't have its fingers in quite as many things as far as body systems as some of the other ones do. But it is, if we don't have that, there is no get up and go. Glutamate is basically our gas, if you want to think about it that way. It makes the gas available be more accurate. GABA, we know as our body's main um, calming chemical. It's our natural volume, if you want to think about it that way. It's involved in REM sleep. It opposes glutamate and reduces tremors. Uh, a lot of um, your benzodiazepines are uh, mimicking or activating uh, GABA. The REM sleep is something to pay attention to. If somebody's not getting good sleep, they may not have adequate levels of GABA. GABA is made, you have um, glutamine, which is broken down to make glutamate, which is your excitatory neurotransmitter, which lo and behold is broken down to make GABA. So if you don't have enough glutamate, you're not going to have enough GABA because you don't have enough RAMA to make it, uh, which is kind of an interesting um, quandary sometimes to look at. If people are using a lot of stimulants, then the body may turn down the amount of glutamate that is being made available, loosely speaking, which means they won't have as much glutamate to work with to break down to make GABA. Gonadal hormones, your testosterone, your progesterone, your estrogen, interestingly enough, are also affected. Um, gonadal hormones are affected, um, affect libido. You know, when your estrogen or testosterone is out of whack, then uh, you're probably not going to have as strong of a libido. And you will find out shortly that alcohol actually influences the levels of estrogen and testosterone in human body. The availability of serotonin is affected by levels of testosterone and estrogen. When those levels are not right, um, then you're going to have differing levels of serotonin avail availability. Additionally, 
put another kicker in there. When we are under stress, when that HPA axis is regularly activated or when it becomes blunted, that affects our level of gonadal hormones because the body says, you know what? There's a lot of stress out there. There's a lot of fighting or fleeing going on. Now is not the time to reproduce. So libido tends to go down. Levels of testosterone and estrogen tend to get altered as well. In response to stress itself, we know that people who are experiencing addiction, experiencing problematic use of substances or even behaviors are often experiencing chronic ongoing stress, um, whether it's because they are, you know, withdrawing and then, you know, they need to use again in order to feel normal, quote unquote, or whether it's because they start to sober up and they look around, and life is not being kind, um, and they see all the devastation caused by their addiction, they get stressed out, or they just don't have the coping skills to deal with life on. You know, it could be a variety of things, but I have yet to meet someone who is presenting, who isn't experiencing or hasn't been experiencing pretty high levels of chronic stress for quite some time. So let's talk about specific substances. Alcohol is one of the most studied, so there is the most information about that. And I will note with our neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters occur throughout the body, and there is no way currently to measure accurately the level of any neurotransmitter in the brain. You can do urine tests and measure the levels of neurotransmitters in the body, but we don't know how much of, you know, the serotonin that we measure in your urine is actually, you know, able to get to and cross into your brain and stuff. There is no way to know how well those brain synapses are functioning and how well they are stocked if you will, with neurotransmitters. So please do not be fooled with um, claims that pe people can take a urine test and identify which neurotransmitter levels are out of balance. All that tells you is throughout their whole body what might not be in balance. Also, um, there are only currently alcohol and cocaine that have Medicaid um, and opioid I'm sorry, alcohol and opioids that currently have uh, medication-approved treatments. Cocaine, cannabis really don't. Nicotine does, but as far as the um, substances that we typically talk about, so I guess it would be alcohol, opioids, and have like FDA um, treatment. So we'll talk a little bit about those, but there are neurochemical correlations between, you know, what's going on who are recovering from detoxing from uh, cocaine and who are detoxing from to recognize that they do impact neurotransmitter. And just because we don't have a specific drug we can throw at it um, doesn't mean that it doesn't directly impact neurotransmitter. So anyway, alcohol affects the endogenous opioid system, which is our feel-good system, GABA, dopamine, serotonin, and glutamate. So wow, al alcohol affects everything. Alcohol consumption results in the release of endogenous opioids, which is what gives us that pleasure feeling, and dopamine, which makes us want to do it again. They found that in order to block this reaction, naltrexone has been helpful because it um, blocks those opioid receptors. So that is one treatment that they are exploring for 
alcohol abuse. With chronic alcohol consumption, the body adapts by reducing the number of GABA receptors. Remember, this is the one that helps us calm down. It's our natural Valium to counteract the continuing alcohol-induced GABA increases. When we initially um, drink alcohol, remember it's a depressant initially, and it causes GABA to increase in our system. But the alcohol leaves our system really fast, and the body has ramped up the amount of glutamate it's producing to balance out the GABA, and so then we start feeling anxiety, and people start feeling that um, uh, tightness in their chest, their blood pressure. Alcohol inhibits glutamate at lower doses when it's having the, when it's creating the glutamate in our system, or the GABA in our system. When we initially drink it, it inhibits glutamate, promotes GABA. That's a great thing. Um, at higher doses, when you start to become severely intoxicated, the body goes, whoa, that's too much GABA. We need to start balancing it out. So think Think of that bath again. You know, you are turning on way more cold water and the body's going, we can't be that cold. Can't be that depressed. So I need to turn up the glutamate, turn up the hot water, keep us from dying, which is a good thing. And baclofen has been found to be helpful in dealing with the symptoms of GABA receptor dysfunction. Alcohol also inhibits glutamate at lower doses, promoting relaxation, which you know, we talk about. At higher doses, the increased glutamate receptor activity can be problematic, again, causing that anxiety effect that people ex Remember, alcohol detox can be life-threatening for people whose bodies have adapted enough that when they stop using the alcohol and it leaves their system, their glutamate levels can be so high, as well as other neurochemicals, their blood pressure can go skyrocketing, which can trigger a stroke and all kinds of other problems. So don't fool yourself that just because alcohol is legal, it's not a dangerous detox. Alcohol also increases serotonin levels. Interestingly, patients with alcohol dependence have lower levels of serotonin. Okay, well that makes sense. When they drink alcohol, it increases their serotonin. So the body says, hey, I don't need to produce that crap anymore. You're gonna give it to me normally. You're gonna be artificially ramping it up. You know, that's, you see where I'm going. And so less serotonin naturally is going through because the body's expecting you to turn that dial up and just really dump serotonin periodically. So people who are alcohol dependent, their body has adapted to that excess serotonin by not letting as much through, by not as much. And when they start to sober up, guess what? they have lower levels of serotonin. They start to feel symptoms of depression. Uh, and alcohol reduces testosterone levels and estrogen levels. Reduced testosterone reduces serotonin levels. So people may experience symptoms of depression, lethargy. Re increases in estrogen are associated with increases in general of serotonin and increases of anxiety. So it's interesting to kind of think about, well, if the opposite happens during withdrawal, you know, people's estrogen levels may be low, their testosterone levels may get higher. So what does that mean in terms of, in terms of you know, things that might trigger relapse? Alcohol causes brain damage. Just no two ways about it. Through toxic metabolites, which cause neuron neuronal damage. So that's one thing. You're just poisoning your brain. It also reduces brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is necessary for neuronal survival. I kind of think of it like food for 
food for the neurons. You know, if they don't have it, they can't continue to survive and grow or oxygen, whatever you want to think about it. It also causes excitotoxicity due to increase this in people who are exposed to trauma, who are exposed to chronic stress and people who regularly ingest alcohol. All of those ramp up that HPA axis, ramp up the levels of glutamate and basically make it too hot. It's too excitable, too much glutamate in the system. So it becomes toxic and you start killing brain cells, which is why people who have uh, alcohol dependence often show, or PTSD, often show reduced hippocampal volume because some of those neurons are just, are dying because of the excitotoxic environment. Alcohol also inhibits amino acid metabolism. Amino acids are the building blocks, the protein building blocks that our body uses to make the neurotransmitters that we need to function, the dopamine, norepinephrine, glutamate, all of those things are made from amino acid. So if our body can't break them down, then it doesn't have the building blocks and it can't build those amino acids. So yeah, we're going to feel kind of crappy. Another thing alcohol does is inhibits the absorption of thiamine which is one of your B vitamins. You might think, well, B vitamins, they're water soluble, not a big deal. It's a big deal. Thiamine deficiency can lead to alcohol-related dementia, also known as Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is a medical emergency. Okay, do not confuse this with any. A lot of times people with early signs of encephalopathy look like they're intoxicated. They have difficulty with motor coordination and gait, their memories. They seem like they've got a little bit of dementia or something going on, kind of, or like they are severely intoxicated. Um, if somebody you're working with, even if they don't identify as having alcohol dependence, if they have recently stopped drinking, they're trying to self-detox or, you know, they w went on a bender last weekend and they are, it's Monday morning and they're in your office and they're still sobering up a little bit and they're, they start to evidence those symptoms. It's essential to get them to the emergency, you know, just eating a good diet ain't going to do it. Um, if they actually do have uh, alcohol related dementia, they're going to need um, the doctor to give them intravenous thiamine in order to get those levels back up. If it's left untreated, it can lead to Korsakoff syndrome, which is more problematic and can be long lasting is what we ca actually call alcohol related dementia. But if left untreated, it can also cause death in up to 20% of cases. So I know I'm harping on this, but it is really important to recognize the symptoms of Wernicke's encephalopathy in any of our clients, even the ones that don't identify as alcohol dependent. And if they start having symptoms of cognitive confusion, cognitive decline, especially if it's combined with some, you know, difficulty in coordination, we do need to pursue that in conversation with them to make sure that they are not in danger. Stimulants affect the brain by building up dopamine and serotonin. They block the reuptake. So dopamine and serotonin stay in that synapse for a little bit longer. So we get to sit there and bathe in, which again, the longer our, our neurons bathe in something, um, the more that potentially gets absorbed into the Concentration, memory, energy, perseveratory behaviors and motivation, vasodilation, so our blood pressure, basically. Immunity and pain management are all impacted, again, by dopamine and serotonin. Low dopamine is associated with restless leg syndrome, fatigue, Parkinson's, and movement-related issues. Remembering that every substance 
alters the level of dopamine. We do need to help patients be prepared for this. So if they start experiencing, you know, some mild panic attacks, if they start experiencing more anxiety, um, we can help them prepare for those things and understand what's going on and forecast a little bit um, whether this is a post-acute withdrawal thing or if it's going to be also um, uh, associated with, you know, long-term anxiety. A lot of times the brain does mostly recover from the assaults, but it takes time, like a couple of years. And yes, Carl, dopamine is also associated with ADHD. Alteration of nerve cell structure in the nucleus accumbens and prefrontal cortex in the brain um, is also associated with continued craving. So stimulant use, especially chronic stimulant use, actually causes changes in the cell structure, which can persist for years after somebody quits using, which is one of the reasons they hypothesize that people, even after the stuff's out of their system and they've been um, living a recovery lifestyle for a year or two or whatever, they may still have occasional. Benzodiazepines increase GABA. Increased, increases in GABA causes increases in dopamine. We feel relaxed, feel good, it's great. It also alters serotonin levels and decreases norepinephrine. These are all things that we would expect in an anti-anxiety medication. However, detox from it is going to look the opposite. So you're going to have um, reductions in dopamine. You're going to have reductions in GABA. You're going to have increases in norepinephrine. So you'll see a lot more anxiety, agitation, GI disruption as HPA axis ramps up into high gear because it is getting the message that there is a stressor out there. The glutamate levels are going up and there's, there's a problem. Opioids activate dopamine and serotonin and also mu opioid receptor. Um, one of the side effects of taking opioids, you know, whether you're taking them by prescription or otherwise, is slowed gastric motility or constipation and potentially reduced blood pressure and slowed respiration. We know that opioids have depressant effects. It also reduces GABA. Interestingly enough, when opioids reduce GABA, it produces an increase in dopamine because GABA, you're not interested in all the, how all of it happens. You can read about it if you click on the link. Um, but the opioids reduce GABA, which allow more dopamine to be released to the system, which is why people often feel more energetic when they take opioids, um, because the reduced GABA means that they're also having more stimulant, more glutamate, more, more norepinephrine activity, and that increased dopamine. So you can combine energy with dopamine and woohoo, you got a party. Cannabis is one that we don't talk about a lot. Um, in, when we talk about substance misuse and substance abuse, we often talk about your, your methamphetamines and your cocaine and those things. But cannabis does affect the brain. The THC in cannabis, now remember that um, CBD oil or CBD technically is not allowed to have more than 1% to 3% THC. So it has very little THC. But cannabis itself has higher levels of THC. THC binds to the endogenous cannabinoid receptors. And the ones where we're talking about mainly are the CB1 receptors. This inhibits GABA, which increases dopamine. Okay, so people who, when they take cannabis, sometimes you may have talked to somebody who got particularly strong marijuana. And when they 
used it and they ate it or they smoked it or however they took it, they felt like they were having a panic attack or their heart was going to beat out of their chest. Well, GABA was inhibited and glutamate increased, which caused that reaction, but it also increased dopamine. At low doses, cannabis increases serotonin. So they have found that it can help some people feel better. Um, but at high doses, it actually reduces serotonin. Um, so you need to find that happy medium if you're talking about THC. It has been shown, you know, and we know this, to reduce nausea due to serotonin activation. But chronic use, and this is interesting, may result in dysfunction of CB1 receptors. You know, the brain thinks that it's getting too much because anything we take orally or we snort it or whatever is going to be at much higher doses than our brain normally produces it, whether it's melatonin or serotonin or any of those things. We're, anything that we take in artificially is at much, much higher doses. So as with everything else, the CB1 receptors may desensitize or become less sensitive, which reduces the flow of blood with glucose and oxygen to the brain, which can result in attention deficits, memory loss, and impaired learning ability. Some people um, believe that this can be reduced as the body gets used to not having the influx of the THC anymore. Um, some people have been found to experience ongoing problems with attention and memory. So the research out there is a little bit contradictory about how much for how long uh, produces these effects, but we do know that in some people it can happen. Nicotine. Uh, nicotine imitates acetylcholine. It increases dopamine, GABA, norepinephrine, and serotonin. So nicotine just kind of throws the entire kitchen sink at you. Um, now, why is nicotine important? And the same thing with cannabis, as tequila points out, cannabis is sometimes called the gateway drug. Well, nicotine kind of can be too, because when people are taking these drugs, they, and even alcohol, you know, your, your legal substance, um, they are altering the levels of neurochemicals in their brain. So somebody may have Maybe in, in detox, they may be trying to sober up, but if they're still smoking, they are still using or, or dipping. They are still using drugs that are altering the levels of neurotransmitters in their brain. And when they do that habitually, what's going to happen? They're going to develop tolerance. Once they develop tolerance, what's going to happen? They're going to have to have something stronger in order to get the same relaxation response. Maybe they're not even trying to get high, but they're trying to feel quote unquote normal. And so nicotine actually can be, as can cannabis, um, can be a stepping stone to harder substances or to more problematic substances because of that, that tolerance effect that people experience. Addictive behaviors add stress to the body. There's just no two about it. When you are flooding your body with way more than it wants to have, and go back to, to that bath again, you know, if you're sitting in the bathtub and all of a sudden you turn off the cold water, you turn the hot water on full blast, you know, that's going to hurt. It's an assault to your skin. Same sort of thing happens when you are ingesting um, or engaging in some sort of behavior or ingesting some sort of substance that increases those chemicals in your brain. You're either basically turning the hot water up full bore or dumping a whole bunch of ice in or turning the hot uh, or turning the cold water up full, full bore. Either way, um, you are significantly altering the temperature 
of the bath and it's going to get uncomfortable. And in order to be able to tolerate it, in order to be comfortable, what are you going to do? You're going to try to balance it out. Your body does the same thing with the neurotransmitter. When it perceives that it is a toxic environment in your brain, it's going to try to balance it out because your brain wants to live. When those neurochemicals start getting altered, though, when your serotonin goes down too much, people are going to feel depressed, depressive symptoms. So if they've been doing addictive behaviors, a lot of them increase dopamine and increase serotonin. So in that detox period, guess what? They're going to have low dopamine, so low perseveration, low determination, and low mood. We want to recognize that a lot of these mood symptoms occur during detox as a result of changes in the brain. It's not just somebody being poochy because they can't have their drug of choice. There are actual changes and lasting changes in the brain that, you know, they last for months, hopefully not longer than a year. Pause usually lasts for about a year, but they are real. And somebody who is experiencing extreme depression or extreme anxiety or even not extreme may feel uh, bad enough that it triggers an addiction relapse. Somebody who is anxious all the time or feeling like Eeyore all the time, you know, uh, is going to have a really hard time staying sober. The brain's survival response is to adapt, protect from overstimulation. Once it becomes sensitized to excessive levels of a neurotransmitter or hormone, uh, it may become hyporeactive. So remember, it's, it's kind of like knocking on the door. Initially, you just need to knock lightly on the door, but then eventually the person on the other side of the door, if you will, gets tired of everybody knocking on their door. So they only answer it if somebody's like banging on the door, if there's an emergency. Same sort of thing with our brains. Um, when our brain becomes hyporeactive, it says can't, can't do it anymore. Can't let that through there because it's getting, um, it's getting too hot or I'm getting too tired. If the levels of the neurotransmitters are increased enough to trigger a response, then the response may be exaggerated. So they're flat, they're just going along, you know, whatever. But if they finally get enough that passes that threshold and it actually triggers the HPA axis, they go from flat to furious. During withdrawal, early withdrawal, the brain has not yet gotten the message that there's not going to be any further assaults. I'm not going to keep turning up the temperature randomly on you. Uh, so the compensatory responses dominate. So if the body's still afraid that you're going to turn up that hot water, um, ramp up the temperature, it's going to keep that cold water flowing because it's, it's expecting another burst of hot water. And it takes a while for the brain to get the message that, okay, we're safe and to start rebalancing and becoming less hyposensitive. During the first one to two years of recovery, it's vital for people to understand that the injuries or adaptations in the brain so they can expect and mitigate physical and psychological. If they understand what's going on, that is half the battle. If they recognize that, okay, you know, my body is trying to rebalance itself and find that, you know, happy temperature, it's easier for them to say, okay, this is hopefully a temporary thing and to plan for it, to notice it, do something about it. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. 
If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.